literally, okay, I, um, for those of you who don't know, I had a, I'm having a tooth replaced. They had to pull a tooth in um, March, March, and I still don't have, I still have a gap in my life, yeah, right in the front, so I'm wearing like a little flipper. But anyway, um, they put a post in, and so they said no solid food for two weeks. So yesterday was my first day of solids, but they wouldn't let me have dairy either, so no lattes, and I'm like a total um, latte aficionado. So I've been without caffeine. So yesterday we went to coffee um, with a couple, and I had just like a half of a latte, single shot, and only drank half of it because it wasn't that good, you know, and you want something really good when you finally get it again. And so having not had caffeine for two weeks, I'm, I'm like early to bed, early to rise. Last night at 11 o'clock, I'm like, Rain, are you going to bed? Why would you go to bed? It's so wonderful. Oh, the night is lovely. I cleaned out my closet, all right? And I, you know, so I'm like, Rain, I need hefty bags. So he goes out to the garage and he's like, I'm so tired of going up and down these stairs for you. And I'm like, oh, why? I'll do it then. Huh? And um, I, I filled... Three hefty bags full of, unfortunately, it's not beauty products because I didn't go to um, those stores. Uh, those stores are next after I have my next latte. You know, it's, um, you know, it's so funny because I was, I was, a friend was talking and she's like, oh, you know, I have a junk drawer. And she's got all this guilt about it, you know, junk drawer. And in my mind, I start counting how many junk drawers I have. Like, you know, I've gone way past 10 in my mind. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, that would be a junk drawer now. I turned it into that. And oh, yeah, that. The only drawers I can think of that aren't junk drawers are in my kitchen. I've got like one junk drawer in my kitchen. But that's not like the desk next to my kitchen. Those are all junk drawers. And then I'm thinking in my bedroom, like I have these top drawers. And I'm like, I think they're all junk. And I've got this office. I think they're junk. So I'm counting my junk drawers. And she looks at me and she goes, you don't have any junk drawers, huh? You, you don't have any? I'm like, are you kidding? I'm up to 10. Um, but that reminds me, I, I feel like I received a word um, for all of you, a word for all of you this morning. And it's interesting because I already tried it out on one person and it worked. So I really believe it's God. But I want to say that all of us are hearing this lie that Satan is trying to beat us over the head with. And I I know that every day I wake up to this lie. And years ago, I had a criminal justice class. And they would tell us that there would be like an alpha in the prisoner, one prisoner who's kind of the alpha. And what he would do is he would find a weak point, a lie that he would keep saying over and over again, keep speaking it to the newest um, inmate just over and over again till they could break that inmate completely down. Just say it. And I believe that all of us has a specific lie that Satan goes after us with. And he says it to us over and over again. And every lie we know has like a little inkling of truth or, or something like a deficit in our life or something that we feel like we've forgotten. And the enemy wants to beat you up with that lie. And I want you to know, first of all, it's a lie. It's a lie. Your heavenly father loves you. He accepts you. You're in his grace. 
and he, he wants to continue to transform you. And you are here, we're going to learn this today, because God invited you here, and you are wanted, and you are loved, and there is absolutely no stain on you through Jesus Christ. And you need to know that. So I want you to stand up right now. And we're going to pray against these lies and that we would all be receptive to the truth. Lord, here are your daughters, and you know how the enemy has gone after each one of these trophies of grace to sift them like wheat. Lord, he wants to tell them that they're less than, that they're undeserving of, that they are bad at, that they have failed, that you are not for them. But God, we know through your word, through the coming of your only begotten son, through his sacrificial death because of love for us, that we are your workmanship. We are your works of art. You love us. You are pleased to dwell in us and with us. Lord, that you are in our lives for our good, for our benefit, for our joy. That there is nothing going on in our lives that you can't fix if we just give it to you. That, Lord, these circumstances are not going to conquer us. But through these circumstances, we are being made more than conquerors in our God. Lord, we rebuke the lie of Satan in Jesus' name. And we exchange this lie for the truth that is found in Jesus Christ alone. And we receive, Lord, the daughtership of the Father that loves us so much. And we receive the the glory of just being the called, the wanted, the pursued, the fixer-uppers. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your love. Lord, remove the lie right now that we might receive the truth, the glorious truth of your great gospel, that it might work in us, deeply planted in our hearts to make us into everything that you desire us to be by your power, through your grace and by faith. We ask these things in the awesome, incredible name above all names, the name that is able to subdue everything to himself, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. All right. So turn to the person before you sit down and say, don't believe the lie. Like that. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, really. Remember? He liked, my mom used to say, that's a lie out of the pit of hell. So you know it's pants are on fire. And the smell of sulfur is all over that. So I grew up um, at Calvary Chapel. I'm an original, almost an original. There actually were families at Calvary Chapel before my dad um, and mom and our family moved here in 1965. Um, But one of the most astounding thing, and I never get tired of, is hearing testimonies of people. And I remember as a young girl just being enthralled because it was about 1969, 1970 that the hippies began to come to Calvary. 
And they all had testimonies, like these radical testimonies. And it was not unusual for my dad on a Monday night to say, oh, I see so-and-so. I was just talking to him this week. You know, come on up and share what Jesus has done for you. And you'd just be like, oh my goodness. You know, as a little girl who, I mean, I used to say to my mom, I'm pure as the driven snow. And that was true. I was always teacher's pet. I wanted to be teacher's pet. I loved every single one of my teachers, always, even the mean ones. I just loved them. They were teachers, and I loved them, and they had knowledge, and I loved them. I know, I was a little weird. But I, you know, I, was, I was thoroughly a church girl. And so, I, you know, I, I didn't have this experience. And of course, when they talked about where they came from, I was like, so glad I missed that one. Glad I missed that one. But, you'd, but when they would talk about it, it was so amazing, and you could not. I think one of the most amazing things is you're seeing the shiny vessel and you cannot equate that vessel with that old life. You're like, no, not you. No way. Because of, of the difference, the contrast. I mean, you're, you're prone to think, no, that has to be a lie. That couldn't have been you. That couldn't have been you. But you, you find out, yes, it was. But look what God has done. I remember when they came out with the book Harvest about the Calvary pastors. It was sometime in um, the 80s. You know, this book came out and it was talking about the, the past of all the different men who are now Calvary pastors or, or were. And a friend of mine came up. She was highly educated. And she goes, Cheryl, is, is doing drugs and having a testimony a prerequisite? For being a pastor of Calvary Chapel, I said, no, read my dad's testimony in John Corson's and you'll see it isn't. But literally, and, and Don McClure's, every other testimony, you're like, whoa, glory, glory. But it was virtually impossible to put them back in that setting of drugs and alcohol, a crime, to ever envision them doing these things. A few weeks back, I think it was this summer, but maybe I told you this last year because I've lost all track of time. You know, it, it happens after 54. I don't, I, I might've talked to you yesterday or it might've been three years ago and seems like yesterday. But I had this young pastor's wife, um, Kimberly Kyle from uh, San Diego County on his channel. And she's just this darling, exuberant woman. I couldn't wait to hear her testimony. And she goes, do you remember talking to me? And I'm like, no. And she goes, I said, so how did you hear about his channel, you know, and today's faith and how are you on here? And she's like, I was telling you my testimony at the pastor's wise retreat and you said you have to be on this program. And um, I gave you my number and you gave me yours. I'm like, right, yes. And for the life of me, I can't remember like what her testimony is. And so we sit down and she's like, yeah, you know, when I was a child, my dad was mainlining in the bathroom. You know, and I'm like, oh, that's terrible. He was mainlining in the bathroom. I'm like, I don't know what mainlining is, you know? And then she was telling me that by the time she was 12, she was a prostitute on the streets of San Francisco. And then she got into, she was, um, she was um, in human trafficking, you know, just a slave to it. She ended up having a, a baby by some unknown father. It was taken away from her for, by Child Protective Services. Um, she became a drug addict. She 
ended up in prison. They're in prison. Someone shared the gospel with her. She got saved. She was discipled by Susan Atkins of the Manson gang. Yeah. Who also cast demons out of her. It's like the most amazing testimony. Then she gets out of jail, but she gets right back with that same guy and gets thrown back into prison. And then she decides she's not going to walk with Jesus because she's mad because she had prayed and now she's back in prison. But so they put her in the insanity ward and she's like, this is okay. These women are so sweet. But then at 12 o'clock, the woman below her on the bunk sits up straight, this cute little girl and starts screaming incantations to Satan. She jumps out of her bunk and says, blood of Jesus, cover me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I repent. Whatever you want, I'll do it. I'm your servant. So anyway, then she gets out and she goes back to prison. I'm like, wait, as a Christian, you went back to prison? She's like, yeah, because I wasn't obedient. I'm like, okay. And so what are you doing now? Oh, I'm a pastor's wife. Woo! Oh, great. <laughs> what denomination? Well, Calvary Chapel, of course. Oh, yes, that's the way we like them. <laughs> she, she's just finishing up her master's degree, too. I mean, talk about it. I mean, she's got the real master's degree. But just that testimony, testimonies are such a declaration of God's grace. They literally put God's great, exceptional, astounding grace on display for all to see. The testimony of that grace of God that goes after the lost, the grace of God that desires and wants the lost that goes after that one in 99 to bring it back to the fold, the desire to rescue the lost, the desire to make the lost his shining trophies and leave no traces of the former slavery and bondage. That's our God. Declaration, also a testimony, is a declaration of God's power to transform form. It's the living proof, the living, talking, walking proof that our God does transform, that the power of the gospel is able to transform, to save to the uttermost, or as Belly Sunday used to say, to the guttermost, all who come to him. God takes the worst case scenarios and changes thinking patterns, behavioral patterns, attitudes, hearts, ambitions, and activities. But one of the most amazing transformations that we read in the Bible is the transformation of Saul to Paul. So amazing was this transformation that Paul, who we call Paul, who was formerly Saul, changed his name to reflect his new identity in Christ. Because it was so astounding that the name Saul no longer fit. We're told in Philippians chapter 3 that Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees from the tribe of Benjamin. This is a tribe that was always in competition with the tribe of Judah. They were once the kingly tribe. The first king of Israel came out of the tribe of Benjamin, Saul, chosen by God. 
But he, through his disobedience, not only forfeited the title, but the dynasty, and it was taken away from the tribe of Benjamin and given to the tribe of Judah. And it was out of the tribe of Judah that David came. And then, of course, our Savior, our Messiah, Jesus. But no doubt, that was a name of such pride. I'm Saul, like the king. You know, I'm Brad, like the pit. You know, it's, it, it's this, this name that, that carries this power and this authority and identifies him with his origins. Now, Paul would have received this name officially on the eighth day of his life at his circumcision. That's when the child was officially named. And there, the son of promise, the son of Benjamin, the son of a Pharisee, received the noble name, the noblest name of the tribe of Benjamin, the name of Saul. But Saul, when he met Jesus, changed his name to Paul. Now, from this great kingly name that identified him with Israel and the first king of Israel and this lineage, he changed his name to Paul, which means little or unimportant. As he would say again in Philippians chapter 3, the things that I counted as important in my life, I consider them rubbish that I might gain the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 12, 11, he said, I am nothing. I am nothing. This man who saw himself as something now says, everything I did before Jesus is nothing, less than nothing everything. And now I am nothing that I might receive everything from Jesus. Paul had such a testimony that those who knew him previously must have marveled whatever happened to Saul. Whatever happened. This marked transformation is clearly visible when you compare Romans 1, 1 through 15, with Paul's former life and identity. When you, when you study his life um, from Acts chapter 9, 22, 26, what he says about himself in Philippians 3, 1 Timothy 1, and other passages, Galatians chapter 1, and you compare this, you compare this, with Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, and how he introduces, identifies himself, and his pursuits, priorities, position, and purposes. In writing to these Romans, you see that there has been a radical transformation. Hippies used to write songs from right where they were and what 
they were experiencing. I remember one girl saying to my dad, I've got a song that God just gave it to me. I've got to sing it. It was all about her labor before giving birth. My dad's like, well, that was interesting. Thank you very much. Don't think it was all perfect. It was interesting. Those times were wild and crazy. You came to Calvary like, I don't know what's going to happen here tonight, but it ought to be interesting. Oh, there were interesting things. I lived through it, barely. But I remember um, Tom Stite had written a song about temptation and, and the devil coming to him. It was called The Devil in Red PJs. <laughs> and Chuck Butler wrote a song about, um, uh, it was called You'll Find My Name in the Telephone Listings Where Credit is Better Than Fair. And it talked about all the righteousness and goodness before. I'll, I'll probably look up those lyrics when we get to uh, Romans chapter 2 and read them to you. But he was talking about how when he went to take the gospel back to his family, his father was like, wait, I've always done everything right. I'm so moral. I don't need the gospel. And he was saying, dad, you need it because you want your name written in the book of life. And so he wrote a song about it. But I remember Chuck Gerard coming to Jesus, you know, Chuck Gerard of the love song, writing a song, I'm going through changes changes in my mind. And I'm leaving all the past behind. And it was his experience in coming to Jesus. It was one transforming change after another. And that's exactly what happens through the gospel. Again, drawing from Acts and Philippians, Timothy, and these other passages, we're going to see this difference, this transformation. Now, one of the reasons I gave you those scripture references is so you can look it up and you can check me. One, um, one time, I actually, I think given it twice, I gave this Bible study, which is one of my favorites, all right, on Leah and Rachel. And it was, it's like really, really good. Uh, God gave it to me in my private devotions. I couldn't wait to try it out. I was asked to speak at this church on Rachel and Leah. I'm like, yes, I got this one because God had given me one in my private devotions. I got up, I gave it. The pastor's wife comes up to me. This tells you how long ago. And she says, your cassette was sold out. Everybody wants that Bible study, but I have to check it and make sure it's really there in the Bible like, oh, thank you very much. Please do. Please check me. I love you. Please go back to the Bible. You find out if these things are true. You know, she never got back in touch with me. Such a good Bible study. It's so true. It's all there. It's a study on contentment and discontentment on a wise woman building her house and the fool plucking it down with her own hands. Maybe someday I'll give it here. It's only been given at other churches. No offense. But in Romans 1, verse 1, Paul introduces himself. Paul, remember, so this is how it would have read in Greek. The little one, a servant of Jesus the Messiah, or the little one, a doulos, bondservant, or devoted slave by choice. The little one, a devoted slave by choice of Jesus, the Messiah. 
This is how Paul sees himself. Doulos, devoted slave, not just servant, but slave. One who is lower than a servant, a slave. A servant was often a paid position in the Roman society, but a slave was an unpaid. They, they received the lowest of the low jobs in, in the home. This man who was formerly an antagonist of all those who were serving Jesus Christ now introduces himself as the servant of the Lord. When did this transformation first take place? In Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus Road, when Paul is going with all the authority of the chief priests and those in Jerusalem to find arrest and find the Christians that are dwelling in Damascus. And as he is on this road, suddenly a light shines from heaven. Paul is thrown to the ground and he hears a voice, the voice of Jesus Christ speaking to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds, who are you, Kurios? Who are you, Lord? At that moment, all of Paul's allegiances changed. At that moment, the purpose and future of Paul was forever altered. He was no longer Saul the Benjamite, Saul the zealous persecutor of the church. From that moment forward, he was always the doulos or the bond slave of Jesus, the Messiah. He became the servant of the very person whose testimony he had tried to eradicate. Paul tells us in verse one also that he is an apostle or one who is sent out. Only 14 men ever held this office, ever, throughout history. The 14 apostles stand alone. Uh, we have the 12 disciples of, of Jesus minus Judas, right? Because he's not an apostle. So we've got those 11. Then in Acts chapter 1, they add Matthias, who becomes an apostle. And then Paul refers to himself and Barnabas as apostles. He says that this apostleship did not, in another epistle, come by the will of man, but by the will of God. His authority for what he did was the call of God upon his life. You see, his personal identity was bond slave, but his call was apostle. I see a lot of people get very puffed up with pride in leadership because they begin to see their calling as their identity. See, your identity when you come to Jesus is always bond slave or servant of Jesus Christ. That's our identity. We stand in Christ alone. But in that identity, he will call or give us 
tasks to do for him. And with that calling comes his equipping and his empowering through grace. But when we start thinking that our identity is the call, then we don't share the call. Then we get competitive in the call. Then we're like feeling superior in the call and we begin to compare the calls. My call rang louder than your call. No, and we all become dinglings. See, you don't, sorry, it just happens. We don't want to find our identity in the call. We find our identity in Christ alone. And the call is what he moves in us, motivates, works in us to do. It's the privilege that we get to assume by his grace for his name. So Paul, by the authority of God, was called an apostle. Now, the Corinthians would later say, Paul's not an apostle. He took that to himself. He, he wanted to be an apostle. He made himself an apostle. You know, we recognize Peter. We recognize, you know, James in the church. We recognize these others, but not Paul. And Paul said, I am an apostle. I've seen the risen Lord. I have spoken to him. And that was one of the qualifications of an apostle. The word itself, as I said before, means sent ones or one that is commissioned directly by Jesus, seeing the risen Christ and sent with the gospel into the world. Paul also explained this apostleship in 2 Corinthians 5.20, and he said, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are his representatives, and we've come with his conditions of peace, his covenant of peace with men. And we'll tell you the conditions. And our message is be reconciled to God through Jesus. Those are the conditions of peace that Paul was sent out to minister. Paul formerly had sought to stop the gospel from spreading. He was on his way again to Damascus to stop the spread of Christianity when he met Jesus. Now Paul is the one spreading the gospel by a divine commission. Paul claims in verse 3 that, oops, sorry. Paul also says about himself that he is spreading the gospel by a divine commission, that he was separated to the gospel of God. This word separated means to be singled out. I like that, singled out. Just like when Jesus, in John chapter five, we read about him going to the pool of Bethesda and there were many sick and dying, but Jesus went after one man, singled him out and healed that one man. And talk about somebody who was undeserving of being healed. I mean, he had never even heard of Jesus when Jesus came up to him and said, would you like to be healed? He goes, yes, and I've got a methodology and I've got a plan for you and this is what I want. And Jesus just looks at him and says, okay, but do you wanna be healed? Do you wanna stick with that methodology in your plan, in your conditions of peace? Or do you really want to be healed? So Paul was singled out. Do you know each one of you was singled out by God? The masses of humanity, but God singled you out for salvation. He came to you because according to his foreknowledge, he knew that you would respond to the gospel of grace. So Paul 
says he was singled out to spread the gospel. He was on God's radar. At one point, he had been part of a mass of persecutors. He had had that group mentality. He was part of an assembly that accused and stoned the innocent, dynamic servant of Jesus Christ, Stephen. Stephen, who had been full of good works, filled with the spirit, had irresistible wisdom. We're told that Paul held the coats of the men who threw the stones that killed Stephen. Paul says at that time that he was consenting to it, supporting it, watched it as it happened, and even promoted the death of this first martyr. In Romans 1, verses 2 through 5, Paul validates the gospel he once tried to destroy. The gospel being the work and accomplishment of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God's Son, our Savior, who died as a sacrifice for the sin of all mankind and rose again because of his righteousness by the spirit of holiness that was working in him. God raised him from the dead, as Peter would testify in Acts, because it was impossible that the chains of death could hold him because death had nothing on him. The power of death is because of sin, and it holds men in the grave because of sin. But Jesus was absolutely righteous, and death could not get a grip on Jesus. And God ordered the release of Jesus, and he rose from the dead. In the same way, when we accept Jesus, the gospel gives us the righteousness of Jesus. It imputes this righteousness to us so that death cannot get a grip on us. So by the gospel, instead of dying, we are transformed. We, we, we get the ultimate transformation. This mortal puts on immortality. And this corruption puts on incorruption. And death gets swallowed up in victory. Death becomes a portal to absolute glory and absolute transformation and better living conditions in the glory of heaven. So Paul talks about this gospel and he says, this gospel was promised in the scripture. Verse two, it was promised by the prophets in the holy scriptures. The prophets spoke about it. It was not a new message, it was predicted. The prophet said that Jesus would be born of the seed of David. The prophet said that he would rise again. Paul was always tying the gospel back to the prophets and scriptures. I believe this is because he knew his past mentality that he thought, in fact, he refers to it as some new sect. That's how I used to think of it before, some new sect that just came out of the blue. But after he got saved, he tells us in Galatians chapter one that he went out to the desert to be by himself. There he searched the scriptures and he saw that it was all in the scriptures from beginning to end. Years ago, 
when I had been married to Brian uh, about three years, he um, got chronic fatigue, and chronic fatigue um, made him bedridden for three months. And he, he literally, um, it attacked his body and his mind. He couldn't think straight. I had to help him down the hall to the bathroom. I had to feed him. It was a tremendously difficult time. And during that time, I had slipped off to the market, and Jehovah Witnesses had come to the door. And he, in his mental confusion, had answered the door. Now, he had been a junior high pastor here, taught the gospel, been a Christian for years at this time, discipled others. But because of the place he was with his chronic fatigue, when the Jehovah Witnesses came to the door, they cast all sorts of doubts on the deity of Jesus Christ. I came home from the market, and he said, Cheryl, I don't know if Jesus is God. I was like, that is cause for divorce in my family. <laughs> you know, I was so scared. I really was like, oh no, what have I married? You know, what am I going to do? I was pregnant with his second child going, oh great, two by this guy. Oh no. I mean, seriously, I was at that point, honestly, I was looking for the exit door. I was, I was like, if he doesn't, you know, I could take the sickness. I could, I could take the hardship, I could take the financial crunch, but I could not take a husband who did not believe the deity of Christ. But you know what that man did? And this is why I adore him. He started at Genesis, one of the many reasons. He started at Genesis, went all the way to Malachi, searching for the deity of Christ. And he found it. He found it over and over and over again in the holy prophets and the Pentateuch, the deity of Christ. And then he went to Matthew and went through the New Testament, was only affirmed, confirmed, and established. And I remember his first sermon that he did at Calvary Chapel Vista on the deity of Jesus Christ. It was so powerful. It was so amazing that I wanted to stand up and cheer. And I realized that God had used those doubts to establish the truth of the deity of Christ so deep in his heart to plant him and establish him in the holy scriptures through the prophets to see the validity of these things. Paul said in Acts 24, 14, when he appeared before Festus, but this I confess to you according to the way they call a sect. So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which were written in the law and the prophets. In other words, Paul said, I, I'm more of a Jew than these guys are because I actually believe it's been fulfilled and I've seen the fulfillment of it. In Acts 26, verses six through seven, before Herod, he stated this, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God day and night hope to attain. Paul says, I've already got it. They're hoping to attain and it's already here. The kingdom of God has come. So he also said that Jesus was declared to be the son of God. He fulfilled those claims, exclusively fulfilled the claims of the Messiah in the Holy Scriptures. Nobody else 
fulfilled those claims. You've probably heard that Jesus fulfilled over um, 300 Old Testament prophecies in his first coming, over 300. The chances of Jesus just fulfilling less than 50 are would be to cover the state of Texas two feet deep in silver, in silver dollars, to get a man who is blindfolded, throw him out the helicopter. We're going to give him a parachute. He chooses the place in Texas to land, digs him deep and pulls up that 50 cent piece. The chance of him getting that 50 cent piece that we marked in Texas is the same chance that Jesus could fulfill. I think it's 10 prophecies. And he fulfilled over 300. This is our Jesus. Jesus did what no man had ever done before. Greater works than Moses. He healed all that came to him. He made greater claims than any prophet of the Old Testament. And he came with a greater, happier message than Jonah. With power. According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus alone lived an absolutely righteous life. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. He lived the law as God intended the law to be lived. Only Jesus. And he did this so he alone could offer a righteous sacrifice to God. No other man on earth could offer a righteous sacrifice to God not even the high priest. They had to have a sacrifice for their own sins before they could offer a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. But our Jesus was so absolutely righteous, so holy, that he was the one sacrifice forever. As the author of Hebrews says, once for all. We used to sing this song, once for all, Oh, brother, believe it. Once for all, oh, Christian, receive it. Cling to the cross, your burden will fall. Christ has redeemed us once for all. And that's what Jesus Christ has done. The resurrection from the dead. Paul affirmed that Jesus was alive every time he got the opportunity to share the gospel, he affirmed that Jesus was alive. He had seen the risen Jesus. This became Paul's theme, whether it was to the intelligentsia at Mars Hill, to the religious elite in Jerusalem, in every synagogue, throughout the world he traveled, or before governors and kings. Jesus is alive. I have seen him, heard him, felt him, and it is his work that has transformed me into the servant of the Messiah. Paul had sought at one time to deny the validity of this gospel. He had refused to consider Jesus. He was blinded, blinded as he spoke of the veil that is over those Jews still when they heard the word of God. So the veil was over him. We're told that those who heard Stephen preaching in Acts chapter um, seven and eight, that they took their fingers and they stuffed their ears so they couldn't hear the irresistible wisdom of Stephen. No doubt that was Paul refusing to hear. He was part of that crowd. I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear this. He was blinded. He was deaf until Jesus met him. 
on that Damascus road. He thought he was uh, fighting against myths, but he realized he was fighting against the truth. As Jesus said, it is hard for you to kick against the prods. Everything was telling him Jesus is Lord, and he had to work hard, hard at refusing the gospel. Paul said he received grace and apostleship. God gave him grace and sent him out. Before, Paul's life had been all about what he accomplished for himself. As he talks about in Philippians chapter 3, he had lived by the law. He was educated by the top rabbi, Gamaliel, as he tells us in Acts chapter 22. He ascended to the rank of Pharisee. He was zealous about the law. He had held himself to rituals, rules, moral standards, and traditions of men. Paul's disposition towards the church we find in Acts, I'm sorry, in Romans 1, 6 through 8. He says to them, you are the called of Jesus, the Messiah. That word called is the word kletos in Greek, K-L-E-T-O-S, kletos. And it means the invited or divinely appointed. The church, you as believers are the called, the invited by God. I love in John chapter one, when, when James and Andrew are kind of stalking Jesus, you know, they're kind of like trying to stay in the shadows and like, let's watch him and see where he goes. And they're just trying to stay hidden. Jesus turns around and says, what are you seeking? And they're like, oh, where do you live, Messiah? And he says, come and see. It's this invitation that is coming. Paul once felt this exclusivity about being a Jew and felt that the Jews were the only called people. He treasured his superiority. The Pharisees were famous for feeling superior and that God loved them alone and that the Gentiles were dogs or cursed. In fact, they used to teach in that day, the Pharisees, that the Gentiles weren't even real human beings. They were fetuses. They, they, they weren't really worthy of, of attention. If they died, it was, it's one less wild animal. Now Paul says, you are the treasured of God. You are the invited. He refers to believers as the beloved of God. You're beloved. You're, you're wanted. You're treasured. Before, he saw them as something accursed, something to be imprisoned and killed. He even spoke about constraining them to blaspheme in Acts 26, 11. But now he says, you were invited to be saints. Saints being both what we have become and what we are becoming. You are a saint living among saints. This word saints is the Greek word hagios or holy one. He says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul at one time was breathing out threats and violence towards the church and thinking was serving God. Now it's grace from our Father, that close association and esteem for the Gentiles. He is eating. He's calling them beloved. No religious Jew would ever refer to God as his father, but he's saying this grace and this peace has come to you directly from God. God's favor, God's blessing, God's empowering, forgiveness, qualifying, preparation, 
It's by grace. It's a superior source. This is how God approaches believers with grace. And the fallout from that grace is peace, not violence. Paul knew God's true nature as father. He hadn't known it before because Jesus said, no one knows the father but the son. And until Paul received the son, he could not know the father and the grace and the peace. Paul also says he's thankful for this church. He is excited that their faith is spoken about. Amazing. He's excited about the faith that he once tried to destroy. Faith as a belief system in Jesus. Faith as individual trust and investment in Jesus. And he says, I am praying for this fellowship and thanking God for your faith. We also see that Paul's behavior change, verses 9 through 12. Paul is no longer trying to destroy the church. He is praying for it without ceasing, making mention of it, bringing it up to God's throne. He desires to see this church in order that he might impart or give something of himself to them. This word impart means more than I'm going to give you something that I have extra and you can have it. It means I'm going to take at the sacrifice of myself and give it to you. It's like Jonathan in the Old Testament when he took off his armor and gave it to David. Jonathan still needed that armor, but he said, it's more important that you have it. Paul says, I'm going to impart to you. Paul was always imparting two things to people, the gospel and his very life. And Paul said, I desire to see you that I might impart, give something to you. Now, remember, this is the man who was trying to take faith away from people. Now he's saying, I want to give you myself and faith. He wants to promote and establish. And not only that, Paul says, I want a fellowship with you. I want to encourage you. And Paul says, and I'm going to be encouraged by you. I'm not going to be violent towards you. I'm going to build you up. No doubt before Paul had not wanted any word about Jesus Christ, as we said at Stephen's trial, plugging his ears, and now he wants to receive. He also says, I want to sow into your lives that I might claim some of the fruit from it. Remember, this is a man who wanted to disassociate from any believer. Now he says, I want to associate, I want to put into you, and I want to reap from what God wants to do in you. Paul's priorities have changed. Verses 10 and 13, Paul predicates all his activity now on the will of God. He is sensitive to the service of Jesus. He wants to please Jesus. Jesus, whom he once persecuted, is now Lord or master of his life. He wants to go where Jesus tells him, and he wants, he's wanted to see them on numerous occasions, but he was hindered from it because he is so sensitive to the Lord that when the Lord said stop, he stopped and the Lord said go, he goes. I have these two grandsons that are really wild. Actually, I have three that are really wild, but two are brothers. And I'm with them, and you know, I'm supposed to be watching them, and they're, they're running into the street. And so I said, I want to teach you a game. It's called red light, green light. You know how your dad has to stop at the red light and he only gets to go when it turns green and at yellow, you have to slow. They're like, yeah. I said, we're going to play that. So they'll go running ahead of me and I'll go, red light. And I stop. Red light, you forgot the yellow one. Yes, I did. On purpose, just to see if you'd catch on. But 
We play that, but this is Paul now. He's red light, green light. When God says stop, he stops. When God says go, he goes. When God says slow, he slows down. Everything is at the pace and order and direction of Jesus Christ. God hindered Paul for greater purposes. Now, Paul, once he hated hindrances, it was hard to kick against the pricks. He was always fighting against hindrances. Now he is embracing those hindrances and he is being used by God to write this amazing epistle. The Romans might have had a visit and those in the church of Rome would have been edified. But God wanted to minister to millions of people over 2,000 years by showing them the significance of Jesus' accomplishments and not only establish this church in grace, but to establish believers in grace today. And so God hindered Paul that we might have the book of Romans. Remember that when you're hindered. Remember that when you're hindered. Years ago, I was driving the car and I was driving my mom to church and we were running late and she's like, Cheryl, speed up, speed up. She's a little speedster. And uh, a car, you know how those cars, they're like, they do these wild, like they're wild people, you know, turns in front of you, pull right in your lane. And you're thinking, oh, they're wild. But then no, they want to go 25 miles an hour in a, you know, 40 mile an hour zone. And that's what this car did. And we were already running late for church. My mom's like, do you think it's a demon in that car? Do you think it's a demon in that car? And I'm like, you know, I, I don't know, but we're slowing down. And as we came around the corner, there's a police officer with a radar gun pointed right at us. I'm like, oh my goodness, look at that. She looks at me, she goes, do you think that's an angel in that car? <laughs> Which brings up that Paul's perspective Perspective was radically changed in verses 14 and 15. Again, formerly he had thought himself superior to the Gentiles. Um, as he says in Galatians 1.14, for I advanced in Judaism, Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. He felt infinitely above Gentiles, superior because of his circumcision, the law, the heritage. He had the entitlement mentality superior because of his education and his knowledge. And now he says, I am a debtor to both the Greeks, barbarians, wise and unwise. Not just accepting of Gentiles, not just equals, but he said, I'm in their debt because of what God has done for me. I owe it. To everybody, I need to redeem the time. I owe the gospel to everybody because of what God has done in me. What brought such a radical change in Paul? And I'm almost done. I'm sorry to keep you over. I'm sorry. That was for me alone. What brought such a radical change in, in Paul? Nothing less than meeting Jesus. Nothing else than hearing the voice of Jesus. That very voice that we hear speaking to us through the word every time we open it and read it. Previously, Paul had been a proponent of the law. All of his past accomplishments, his heritage, his education, his knowledge, his privilege, his zeal, his service, his education, his adherence, and strict observation to the law. But all these had ever done for him was brought him frustration, violence, hatred, and destruction. 
It had made him a destroyer, not a builder, a critic, not an encourager, a persecutor, not a protector, a foe, not a friend, a murderer, not a lifesaver, a shaker, and not an establisher. But all that was changed when he received the grace of God through the gospel. You see, the gospel is meant to transform and mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul wrote this, But we all with unveiled faces, as in a mirror, are beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. We need to allow the gospel to do his work, its work. You see, the gospel is like a seed. Inside that seed, inside every seed, is the potential of a tree. Inside every seed is that potential of a tree. It has all the power in that seed to grow a tree, but it must go deep into the soil and it must be given room. It must be invested in. It has the power to push through the hard ground. It has the power to pull nutrients from the soil. It has power to establish itself firmly in the ground. It has power to grow and strengthen. It has power to hold the weight of branches. It has power to turn sunlight and carbon dioxide, which is normally a poison, into energy, fruit, sugar, and oxygen. It has the power to take what could be fatal to some of us and turn it into greenery, beauty, and life-giving breath. That's what the gospel is able to do in us if we will allow it to do its work. Paul let it do its work in him. And look how transformed he was. But it must be given consideration. Remember, Paul went away to ponder the gospel and search it out. It must be given priority. The weeds must be taken out. It must be invested in. It must be watered and cherished and nourished. And it must be given unlimited access to every place in our hearts and lives. God wants to recreate us, his creation, and return us to our original purpose, plan, and beauty. And he does this through the gospel of grace, not by our striving, not by our rituals or the laws we put ourselves under, but he does that as we simply allow the gospel to do everything it's meant to do in us by the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that it's all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel. Lord, those things in ourselves that we want changed, they are being changed. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you take us who are cast offs, that you take um, our lives, Lord, which are going the wrong direction by the gospel. You turn us around and you make us trees to our God. 
Lord, and, and you allow the things that come to us to be poisonous, to turn in our greenery and beauty and life, to be a shelter and refuge for birds and squirrels and other little cute creatures. Lord, you do this amazingly through your gospel. Lord, I pray for every woman here that we will allow the gospel to have its full reach in our lives, that we won't give up on the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.